Well, good morning, Hardy Souls. Uh, great to have you here today. I'm Tom Nelson, and I uh, want to give you also a Merry Christmas and welcome to the Leeward Campus. Um, do you like this weather? Um, I grew up in Minnesota, most of you know, and uh, I've had enough snowy Christmases, but uh, some of you love white Christmases, and I guess you've been praying hard, and God has answered your prayers. Actually, this year, um, I have felt a great sense of panic. Some of you can't relate to this. I know you can't. Um, but we had a shorter Thanksgiving to Christmas window, and for last-minute shoppers, I have a shopping disorder. I don't know if it's officially in the DSM-5, but um, I am a last-minute shopper. And so when I see the weather and the time, I'm sort of in a panic yet because I have a few to go. You all done Christmas shopping? Some of you last-minute shoppers like me? Come on. There has to be someone here this morning. Man, I'm like that. Well, I'm really not very good at Christmas shopping, um, but I uh, do try to keep up with Christmas movies. And um, I was uh, pretty surprised, actually, that NPR, if you're an NPR listener, in one of the NPR stories, there was an intriguing question that they were giving to all the people who listened to NPR. And the question, if you heard it, and maybe you've actually participated in the survey across the nation, is, what is your favorite Christ- or Christmas movie? Um, and uh, the answers were rather surprising in some ways, in some ways not. Uh, I don't know how you'd weigh into that. Um, but one of the surprises in the survey is Die Hard came up high on the list. I never thought Die Hard was a Christmas movie. <laughs> But you can imagine some of the common ones, right? If I were to ask you today, your favorite Christmas movie, someone would pop up. Here's one, number one in the survey, A Christmas Story, right? Ralphie's BB gun. Um, this is woven into our culture. I just love this movie, and some of you watch these, you know, endless every year. Another one, of course, a classic one is George Bailey's It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, many of us have watched this many, many times. Uh, another one that made it really high on the list was a Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm all over that with Miss Piggy and, and Kermit. Uh, I think that's one of the best ones, actually. And actually, my favorite, perhaps, uh, which might make you not want to ever come back to Christ Community or listen to me ever again, is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Um, I'm sorry if I just ruined your day, but the Griswold's Christmas is my favorite well, you know, I've often thought about, and you have too this time of year, right, about Christmas movies, uh, or holiday movies, as they're called in an increasing secular culture. What is it about our interest in Christmas movies or holiday movies? Uh, why do people across the spectrum, at work and at school, people are talking about the classics and the new Christmas stories and movies? And I have to say that at least one of the things that I want to suggest for our consideration this morning is why they resonate so much with us. It's because often they tap into this sentimental feeling of home and hearth, that all of us want to be loved and to love and to belong and to be part of family. And I think this touches us deeply. I think Christmas time, regardless of our faith and or unfaith or our worldview, in our culture in America, causes us to revisit some of the deepest longings of the human heart, and that is to love and to be loved and to belong and to be cherished. The question I want to raise from this text this morning as we press into it is really what kind of love does the Christmas story really point us to? What kind of love? Is it the sentimental holiday love of home and hearth, of the Griswolds Christmas, that we hear so much about at Christmas, or is it something more? Is there something tugging more at our hearts 
when we think about Christmas. When we look back to the first century Christmas, most of us probably think of the gospel writer Luke, don't we? Luke captures the historical details we are familiar with in Luke chapter 2 of Jesus' birth in a manger. And Luke does his best to point out Mary's extraordinary love for her beloved child. And he does it in nuanced ways. He describes that tender moment of Mary with baby Jesus as Mary treasuring and pondering things in her heart. Now, while Luke gives us a glimpse into the manger, it is actually someone who knew Mary better that allows us to peer deeper into it. His name was John. We refer to him as the disciple John or the apostle John. And the apostle John allows us, in the text we look at today, to look deeper into the mystery and meaning of the manger. And he helps us to see the true love that dwells there. It is not the love that Mary has for Jesus that is most on his mind. It is the love that Jesus has for Mary and the love, the true love, Jesus has for you and me. And what John will tell us, the one who knew Mary perhaps the best outside of his, her immediate family, because remember, he took care of her after Jesus' death on the cross. So John knew this moment well as he talked with Mary, I'm sure, many times about it. And what John is telling us is that Christmas reveals what true love really is. And he invites us to experience this true love that Christmas reveals. So if you have your Bible, I want us to tell the old, old story this morning of Jesus and his love. And John tells it brilliantly. So turn, if you would, to 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. And we're going to press in this morning on 1 John chapter 4. You know, in our open here journey, we have been walking all the way through the Bible, and now we're coming almost to the very end. And if you have a hard time finding 1 John, it's almost at the end of the New Testament as we wrap this year up. In chapter 4, what I'd like to do is press into verses 7 through 12, or 13, and I want to raise two questions that John raises as he looks into the manger of Bethlehem, and he allows us to dwell there. The first question is, what is true love? What is true love? And secondly is, how do we truly love? So John's focal point in this literary structure is to raise the question, what is true love anyway? Is it merely love of sentimentality, of home and hearth at Christmas, or is it something more that our heart tugs for? And then the question is, how do we truly love? So that's where we want to head as you're following along with me this morning. Look at me at verses 7 through 10. I do want to read it again, and let us press into it. John begins, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in this love, love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, that we have, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Now, if you've read this letter, you know that John brings to us a very pastoral, gentle tone. This letter is loved by Greek students because the Greek is simple, but it is elegant and profound. And this is the nature of 1 John. Its simplicity and elegance must not shroud us from its deep profundity. And what John does in his literary structure is he describes for us what true love is in these four verses. And he hangs it 
in his structure on the first word of verse 12. It is translated beloved. And you will notice in this text, in all of John, the many times that John repeats this word love. But here he has a distinct nuance and grammatical structure of this word love that is translated beloved. So John is saying that love's greatest object, its true object, is, in, is us. That we are God's beloved. Now when you think about that, that is amazing. Because of all that God loves of his creation, what John is saying is that the object of God's most willful and affectionate tender love is you and me. And he calls us his beloved. In English, this word uh, in like Webster's Dictionary describes the affective as well as willful love. It is a love of, of joy. It is a love of unconditionality. It is often translated greatly cherished. It is a love of both mind and heart. And what is amazing to us is the gospel writer Matthew uses this very same word to describe the Trinitarian love of the Father for the Son when Jesus is baptized. So the gospel writer Matthew describes the Father, the voice from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the very word the Father says for the Son, John is saying, God says of us, that we are loved with the Trinitarian love. Now, for some of us who have loved Saturday Night Live, um, maybe that's a little sacrilegious to you, I don't know. But I found myself watching an SNL review. Like, it came out this year, a survey of the greatest moments of SNL. And again, if you watch Saturday Night Live, there's a skit on there that's been an icon, at least for the boomer generation. And that is the church lady. Remember her? Now, the church lady is rather cynical about the church. <laughs> and uh, I'm not advocating her cynicism, because, but there is a sense that all church people have their eccentricities, including pastors, right? So we can laugh a little bit. But one of the fr- phrases that I saw again that I remember several times is the church lady looking into the camera and saying, isn't that special? Remember that? Now, while her cynicism I don't agree with, her language of specialness is right. And rather than, isn't that special, the church's message at Christmas is to say, you and me are that special. We are special. That's what John says. We are his beloved. And what is really special to God is his glorious ruin. We, his broken creation, can become his beloved children of God. So John puts the backdrop of a broken world becoming the beloved of God. Henry Nouwen, I think, has pressed into this idea better than any Christian writer. And if you've not read Henry Nouwen, he comes from another religious tradition or Christian tradition, but he's brilliant on this idea of being beloved. In one of his books, he writes, Jesus' whole message, I think we have this here, is to say, now this is interesting, this, his whole message is to say, according to Nouwen, that you are God's beloved child. When you can hear in your heart and not your head that you are truly God's beloved daughter, that you are truly God's beloved son, everything turns around. The mystery of the spiritual truth, he says, is that you were loved before you were born. And you will be loved after you die. Your dwelling in God's heart is a dwelling from eternity. 
John will use this word, beloved, to frame his book. And here we see it framing the first few verses. And what John is saying is that the beloved child in the manger came so that you and I can be the beloved children of God and be loved with Trinitarian love like the Father loves the Son. Now that's special. That's true love. And you'll notice, after framing the object of his love, John focuses on the source of love. You'll notice this in verse 7, that God himself is love. And the way we might say this, y'all, is this. True love, not just any love, but true love is divine DNA. That's what John is saying. Now, sometimes in our culture, we hear the language, basically, that love is God, rather than John says God is love. And this is no small thing. In our cultural context, we have a lot of distorted ideas about love, don't we? And often, the idea is that love is God himself, that that's what God is, is love, whatever that is. And many times, this idea of love deifying itself and distorting who God is, because God has many attributes, including love. He is holy and just as well, of course. But we have missed this idea that God is love. Many of us buy into the fact that love is this radical inclusion and radical tolerance that winks at sin. But what we understand what John is saying is he's describing for us the kind of love that is truly a God love. It is the Christmas love of radical generosity and costly forgiveness. Notice how John unpacks this. It is a generous and costly love that does not wink at sin, that does not demand radical acceptance for anything I do or think or say, that does not push sin under the rug, but rather saves me from my sinful self. That's the message of Christmas. Now notice, John repeats something twice in verses 9 and 10, and this is the essence of how he describes God's love. You'll notice in verses 9 and 10, if you're following along, this repeated phrase. Do you see it? God sending his son. One of them, he says in very emphatic text, his only son. So in verse 9, John peers into the manger, and he says, this is God's love incarnate. God's love is a generous love. It is radically generous. God sent his only son. Have we thought what it must have meant? Can we even begin to fathom what it must have meant for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect Trinitarian uh, glory and unity for them to send Jesus to this sin-ravaged planet? None of us from our finite vantage point can even begin to grasp what this radical generosity was that the Trinitarian God reflected in sending Jesus. I read Ravi Zacharias a lot, as you probably pick up, and Ravi is a friend of Christ's community and a wonderful Christian apologist. In his Christmas letter, he hit it out of the park commenting on Isaiah 9-6. And this is what he says. He says, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given. And then he says, let us be sure of what is being said here by the prophet Isaiah. The son is not born. The son eternally existed and is given. 
The child is born and entered our time. He who dwells in the realm of eternity entered time. So Ravi is pointing out something we dare not miss. And that is that Christmas is about the radical generosity of the triune God. That the triune God sent his eternal, perfect, sinless son to earth. And not only does that model and demonstrate the most radical generosity that true love is, but it is inherently built into the idea of costly forgiveness. And this is where John goes next in verse 10. Notice he uses the word propitiation. It simply means atoning sacrifice. That God's holy righteous wrath is satisfied by the Son's death on the cross and shedding his innocent blood. And again, the idea of the manger and Jesus coming is that he came to die. That God didn't just wink at sin as no big deal. True love took on sin on himself, the sinless son of God, and died for us. Several years ago when I visited Bethlehem on a, on a graduate study program, I'll never forget a lot of thoughts I had. But standing where that Bethlehem cave was, where Mary, we know almost exactly where it was. We're very sure of that. And when you stand there, what was once a cave, and you look to the north, only five, or south, only five miles away are the Jerusalem hills. I can imagine Mary holding Jesus, looking out the entrance of the cave, looking at the hills of Jerusalem where Jesus would die. The Bethlehem cave pointed to the Jerusalem cross. This is what John is saying. This is true love. And John is saying to us, from Bethlehem to Golgotha, to the Mount of Olives, to Jesus' return, that we are God's beloved and that we are secure in his everlasting love. I'm afraid this morning that it's easy for us when we hear the word love, oh, that's Christmas, and tune out. But all of us, all of us so long to be loved. We were created, we were hardwired to be loved and to love and to belong. Yet we chase after lots of mirages that never satisfy us of love. We chase after popularity at school with our friends or in our community thinking somehow if we could just be cool enough, if we can just have a ton of Facebook friends, if we can just position ourselves socially in the neighborhood or in our city and we'll feel loved and feel like we belong and are important. But like all mirages, they promise much and deliver little. Sometimes we, in our hunger for love and longing and belonging, we chase the mirage of wealth, of power, success, thinking somehow if we achieve enough, we'll be worthy of God's love, of others' love, we'll be important. People strive to feel loved and belong in so many ways, and this is so common in our day. People chase mirages of that even all their life, and the mirage turns up empty. Sometimes we chase the mirage of relationships of love, maybe a best friend, a BFF. Maybe that soulmate we long for, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse. And somehow we think if we can just have this soulmate, if we can just find this kind of love, if we can just belong, we'll find true happiness. But love mirages promise much 
and they deliver very little. All of us long to love and be loved, and we long to belong. We were created for that. John asks us the question in this text, are we looking for love in the wrong places? Because true love came to us in a manger and died on a cross and rose gloriously from the grave. And true love will visit this planet again. John is so clear all the way through this text to verse 19. We love because Jesus loved us first. Because we are his beloved, we can love others. And the deepest longing of your heart will never be satisfied by things, by position, by power, by all this world has to give, but only the person who came in a manger. John repeatedly calls us to truly love one another, and he raises the questions for us. Do we have a radical generosity and a costly forgiveness? You'll notice how this text is wrapped around loving one another. So I think a question for us in Christmas is are we radically generous? Are we radically generous like God with our time, our talent, and treasure? 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John has already said, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love is not just merely saying words, it's living a life. It is a life of radical generosity, not a token of our time, talent, and treasures. It is over-the-top God-like love. In chapter 3, verse 1, John says this, how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us his love. Christmas story calls us to lavishing kind of love. Is this not Charles Dickens' brilliance in A Christmas Carol? Old Ebenezer Scrooge, his cold, lifeless heart is transformed. When it's transformed, when he becomes the beloved, he becomes the lover of all, and he lavishes love on others. This is true love. God-like love is radically generous, but it's also quick to forgive. It's costly, because it would cost Jesus everything to forgive us. Everything. We often hear the words at Christmas, and I sing them along. We have all kinds of CDs. Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. You know, and all the fun little things are cool. But I want to say, oh, really? Is Christmas the most wonderful time of year? Don't you think sometimes it's the most awful time of year? Visiting family and friends is wonderful, but there are moments you can be ambushed, right? Hurtful wounds, past histories. You know, I enjoy going to Christmas parties, and I really love them, so don't get me wrong. I love the food, and I pig out like you wouldn't believe. And I like the conversations, but I've been in Kansas City 25 years. And not only have I met wonderful people, I still I have a history with people. <laughs> and you do too. And you go to a Christmas party, and you see someone, and maybe there's some memories that come with them of a past hurt. See, pastors not only hurt others' feelings, and I'll apologize when I have for you. I'm sure I've hurt your feelings at times and failed you. But pastors have hurt feelings too. I, I think you know that. 
And when you've been around 25 years and served many, many wonderful people, there's some hurts. When I go to Christmas parties, sometimes I run into those. And the hardest thing about Christmas parties for me is it forces me to look into my heart and find some unforgiveness still lurking there. And then I need to remember, and you need to remember, and perhaps as you go home for Christmas, you're going to be ambushed by a past, a history, a hurt, a family hurt. Do I remember Christ's costly forgiveness for me? Am I loving others with Christ's forgiveness? Or am I like that unforgiving servant of Jesus, uh, uh, in Jesus' parable? Remember that? He had this humongous debt. Unbelievable. Millions and billions of dollars, literally. And he goes, once he's forgiven, he goes and grabs this guy by the throat who owes him like $10. Jesus' point is you've been forgiven of such an amazing debt by a holy, perfect, righteous God because you're a vile sinner and I'm a vile sinner. And for you not to extend forgiveness to a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a friend, a father, a co-laborer, a worker, a school chum, is unthinkable. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. And his great prayer, he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. John tells us in this text, what is true love? True love finds its source in God himself. True love places us as God's beloved object. And true love is costly. It's radically generous, and it's costly. And it flows from a transformed heart. Don Carson, New Testament scholar, has a wonderful book on love. It's one of the finest ones I think I've ever read. It's called Love in Hard Places. Is love hard? You bet. Some of you are going to go to hard places this Christmas. But the hardest place is your heart and mine. And Don says this. What is the first hard place? It is the hardest place of all, the place of love's origin, our hearts. What is true love? John says true love is divine love. Divine love of radical generosity and costly forgiveness. And it flows from a transformed heart that experiences what it means to be his beloved. But how do we love like this? Pretty hard, isn't it? And notice where John goes in the second question. How do we truly love? He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Do you notice how he connects all his thoughts around the scaffolding of beloved and then beloved? Do you see that? In verses 7 through 10, John tells us that the beloved means we are recipients of divine love. And now in verse 11 through 13, he emphasizes that as redeemed image bearers, we are conduits of divine love to others. So let me ask you, what's on your Christmas list this year? Sure, you have lots of good things. I googled the top 10 Christmas gifts of the year. You know what came up? I almost laughed at my computer. And if you're a Barry Manilow fan, I'm sorry. <laughs> the top gift that came up was Barry Manilow's A Christmas Gift of Love CD. Unbelievable. I don't know where they got that. 
There was also Nerf N-Strike Elite Rapid Strike CS18 Blaster. I don't know what that is, but that's awesome. (laughs) You know, and iPhones and diamond jewelry. But I want to ask you the question, what is on the Apostle John's Christmas list for you this Christmas? And there are three powerful gifts we see in this text. True love Christmas gifts that John wants you to have. First is the gift of spiritual community. Do you see this? The pronouns of this text are all first person plural. This is not about me first. Yes, we experience the love of God as individuals, and that's glorious. But John is focused on us as a community. And look at verse 12. We often miss this. He says, God's love is perfected in us. Us. And the word perfected means completed, experienced fully. And what that is saying, that we cannot fully experience the love of God by ourselves. We experience God's love as an individual, of course. But in community, this experience of God's love is made whole and complete. Apostle John's wish list, his Christmas list for you and me, is that we would experience spiritual community in our local church context. Paul Turnier, a psychologist in Switzerland, said there are two things we cannot do alone. One is to be married and the other is to be a Christian. That's what John's saying. We were created with community in mind and we are redeemed with community in mind. Are we growing in our commitment to our church family? I ask this question not as a pastor who wants something from you. Not to make Christ's community, the hip church, the biggest, the best, and all that stuff. Because I want something for you. Because the love you long for, the, the, the longing to belong and to love others is found in spiritual community together. The local church is the ultimate Christmas gift apart from Jesus. That's what he says. And our new community group initiative in January, I'm going to encourage you, if you're not involved, to be involved, to get connected with someone else. I think that's a Christmas gift that's going to keep on giving all year, of learning to love and be loved as Jesus wants us to love. The second gift is the gift of intimacy with Christ. You see this in this text? One of the great truths of the Bethlehem manger is that God came near to us. That the good news of the gospel is when we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know Christ personally and intimately, and we know him together as we pursue him together in local church life. Do you see this text? In verse 13, John says, we abide in him and he in us. We not only cultivate intimacy with Jesus in our own personal spiritual disciplines, that's primary, but we also nurture intimacy with Jesus when we gather together as a local church. In a similar way, true love is perfected or made complete in community. Our intimate communion with Jesus is also perfected and made complete in local church community. And as followers of Jesus, we all go through spiritual dry times, don't we, at times? Maybe you find yourself there in your relationship with God right now. And when we're in a dry time, often the tendency is to withdraw. What John is saying, don't withdraw, engage. The last thing we should do is to separate ourselves from spiritual community. Because growing an individual intimate with Jesus is good, but ultimately we grow together as a community. 
And it is many times our deep commitment, whether we feel it or not, in a local church that brings us back to deeper intimacy with Jesus. So one of my prayers for you and our entire congregation across our campuses is that this Christmas we might both individually and collectively experience in the new year greater intimacy with Jesus. The last is the gift of the Spirit. John wraps it all up by putting a ribbon and bow on his thoughts in verse 13. Do you see it? And it reminds us that this kind of love, to experience it, to express it, to belong, is knitted together by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to guide and empower us and to indwell us as a local church congregation. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love. A love of radical generosity and forgiveness, a love of joy, a peace, of gentleness, of self-control. A love that does not seek its own, does not abandon others, it believes all things, endures all things, it hangs in there. My prayer again for you this Christmas is that you would experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life, and I would as well. John says, Christmas reveals what true love is. But how is this possible? It is through the generous Christmas gifts, spiritual community of intimacy with Christ and of the Holy Spirit. So what is your heart telling you this Christmas? Is your heart, like my heart, telling you there's more than holiday love and sentimentality, as wonderful as that is, of home and heart, that you truly long for. So perhaps it's time to take a deeper look in the manger to a love that will never leave you empty after Christmas, to a true love that lasts way beyond Christmas and for all eternity. What John is saying to us as he looks in the manger is Christmas reveals what true love is, and it declares to each one of us who are broken sinners, that we can become his beloved. Let's bow our hearts for prayer. With your heads bowed this morning and your eyes closed, as a pastor who cares for you, let me ask you a couple thoughts as we wrap this up. Princeton University's most towering intellect was Robert Dick Wilson. Robert Dick Wilson was asked once, what is the greatest thing you've ever discovered in your esteemed intellectual career? Dr. Wilson, without hesitating, said this, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Have you experienced this love? The good news of Christmas heralds the good news of the gospel. That you and I as broken sinners can become God's beloved when we embrace him in repentance and faith. And we can love others as God wants us to love others. Heavenly Father, may we be reminded that the true joy of Christmas is not about how many gifts are under our Christmas tree, but about the one gift given to us in the manger in Bethlehem so that we, so that I, as a broken vessel, can become your beloved. In Jesus' name.